You're listening to the Fitness and Wellness Class, powered by NASM. NASM's new subscription service, NASM Connected, is the best value in fitness. When you sign up, you'll get access to everything you'll need to expand your career, master new disciplines, and stay up to date with your certification in one great package. Gain instant access to over 350 online fitness courses available anywhere, anytime, on any device. Earn CEUs for dozens of approved providers. Plus, unlock articles, webinars, videos, and podcasts from the biggest names in fitness. Don't wait. Sign up today and unlock the best content in fitness at the best price. Get connected at nasm.org connected or call one 800 460 6276. Hey guys, my name is Katie Coles and I'm a registered dietitian. I have my master's degree in nutrition and I'm also the chief science officer and co-founder of Avatar Nutrition. So whenever people find out I'm a dietitian, they always want weight loss advice. And I really don't blame them because weight loss has been made to be this really confusing thing. Like, for instance, diet trends just change every decade. In the 1980s, it was all about low fat. In the 90s, it was all about low carb. In the 2000s, it became about low protein. And then post-2010, it became all about intermittent fasting, as well as the vegan diet and a whole bunch of others. So people are really confused about what brings about weight loss. They don't know what a good diet is. And compounding that you know, there's all this crazy stuff that you find on the internet, stuff that claims there's some magic secret to weight loss, right? So maybe you guys recognize some of these uh, headings. Trainers hate him. His abs are crazy. Never eat these foods again. So they give these black and white recommendations to people and they make it seem like there's a secret to weight loss. So as cringy and clickbaity as some of these things might seem, um, the fact that people click on this, which they must, because otherwise companies wouldn't be paying to put out these ads, that really says something about people. It says that they're desperate to lose weight and they don't understand how fat loss works. So as personal trainers, your clients are gonna to come to you looking for general diet advice and help. And in order to best help them, you guys are gonna to need to understand the principles behind weight loss, what drives it. You're going to need to understand how to discern between good information and bad information. And finally, you'll need to know how diets that are effective and sustainable are put together. So we're going to talk about all that stuff today. In this session, you're going to learn about the science behind weight loss, why many common diet claims aren't true, the pros and cons of three of the popular diets out there right now, what factors to consider when choosing a diet, and finally, how dietitians put together effective and sustainable nutrition plans to support individual client goals. We have a lot of stuff to talk about, so let's dive right in. So first of all, let's talk about energy balance. In order to lose weight, you need to create a calorie deficit. So that means that you're going to be eating fewer calories than you're burning. That's going to get you into negative energy balance. And you can do that either by taking in less energy by eating less or by burning more energy, for example, by walking around more or by exercising more. Or you could even do a combination of the two. And if your goal, for example, is to gain weight, 
you're going to need to eat more calories than you're burning. And that's going to put you in positive energy balance. Okay. So I just made that sound really easy, right? Like this really simple comp, this really simple concept of calories in versus calories out. And on the surface, it does look simple, but there's actually a lot more to it than that. And it can get really complicated. And that's because there are so many factors that affect how many calories you take in and how many calories you expend. So on the calories inside, um, hormones actually act to mediate appetite. So that's just one of the ways that appetite can be increased is by these appetite hormones. And two of the most famous are ghrelin and leptin. Um, and with leptin, it's emitted from um, fat cells. And it's kind of like this long-term signal to your body and your brain that you're getting plenty of energy as your fat cells increase in size, and that's going to send the brain the message that you're full. Now, ghrelin, on the other hand, that's a short-term appetite suppressant or appetite increaser, and it's going to increase uh, the longer you go between meals um, after eating, that's going to increase in levels. So that's going to tell your brain that you're hungry. So there's a lot more appetite hormones than that, but those, those are just a couple of examples about how hormones mediate this response with the brain. Also the environment. So you guys may be able to relate to this. Social influences are going to have a huge impact on um, how you guys perceive food and how hungry you get, how many calories you take in. So you might have friends, for example, that love going out to eat or love going out and drinking, and maybe you partake in some of that. So that's going to increase how many calories you take in. On the other hand, where you live geographically can impact all this. So if you live in a food desert, for example, and there aren't a lot of really healthy choices or good grocery stores, um, maybe you're going to be surrounded more by fast food restaurants or convenience stores. So you're probably going to end up eating more calories. Psychology comes into play. There's the psychology of eating. So some people eat to survive and other people are eating more for maybe um, emotional reasons, right? And so just how you view food in general is going to impact how much you eat. Finally, absorption, that impacts things. And a lot of people don't think about that. They kind of think whatever they're eating is what they're going to get. That's what their body is going to use for energy. But some people absorb less food than others. Um, and that really depends on how food is processed. It can depend on the gut bacteria in your GI tract. And it can also um, be affected by your gut health. All right, let me get a quick drink and then we'll talk about calories out. Okay, so just like there are a lot of factors that affect the calories inside of the equation, there are also many that affect calories out or how many you burn. That includes your basal metabolic rate. So this is the amount of calories that your body uses when you're just sitting around. It's what it uses just to exist. For example, the energy that your brain uses or your liver, your muscle just at rest. So that's going to be most of your calories for the day. And then there's the amount of calories that you burn when you exercise. Exercise includes planned structured activities. This includes stuff like playing sports, going on a run, going to the gym, that sort of thing. And then there's something that researchers call meat, and that's non-exercise activity thermogenesis. And what that is, it's the, is, is the calories that you burn during unstructured activities. So these are things that you aren't necessarily thinking about. For instance, 
what you're burning when you're just pacing around or fidgeting or doing your activities of daily living, for example, like cleaning the house or watering the plants. Um, and then finally, there's the thermic effect of food. And this is how many calories your body uses just to process and digest food. And the amount of calories used is going to differ depending on whether you're breaking down protein, carbs, and fat. And we'll get all into that next. Okay, so this whole thing is a little bit more complicated than it seems on the surface, right? Energy balance equation has a lot to it. And it's hard to account for all of these factors. And that's what makes people think that the equation isn't valid. And you might have had this experience where one of your clients says, you know what, I'm in a calorie deficit, but I'm just not losing weight. And they get so frustrated. But the truth is, if your client was actually in a calorie deficit, they would be losing weight. It, they would be losing weight. So they're not really in a calorie deficit. They just think they are. And it's really easy to have that happen um, because there are a lot of ways that errors can slip in when you're trying to predict how many calories you're eating, as well as how many calories you're expending. So let's talk about that really quick. On the calories inside, first of all, there's misreporting. And this happens uh, in a lot of research studies. People are known to underestimate how much they eat. It's super easy to forget some of the items that you eat and just not log it. For example, condiments, stuff you're putting on your salads, beverages you're drinking, the little bites that you eat that add up to a lot of calories throughout the day. Those things might not be considered. And also there are inaccurate serving sizes. So Americans in general suffer from something called portion distortion, where they're so used to seeing this huge amount of food on a plate that they start to equate that as being normal. So they have no idea what an appropriate serving size is. So what we find is that a lot of people underestimate what they eat and they're eating a lot more than they think they are, unless they're actually weighing food out and putting it on a food scale, which let's be honest, very, very few people actually do. Also, there's food labeling errors. So just because something says it has a certain amount of calories on the label doesn't mean that's what's actually in the food. And a lot of people don't realize that, but the FDA has this margin of error that's 20% either direction. So to put that in perspective, let's say you have 500 calories worth of a certain food. That could mean that you're getting 400 calories or that you're getting 600 calories. That's a pretty big discrepancy. And it's usually closer than that, but that could happen. Also, there's this issue that people don't think about with lack of uniformity of a food. So let's take something like granola, where you have clusters of oats, you have a lot of nuts in there, maybe you have some dried fruit. Now, when the amount of calories per serving is calculated, it's calculated with the idea that that's uniformly distributed. But we've all had the experience where you're getting to the bottom of a bag of trail mix, and maybe you find that the nuts and the dried fruit, the stuff that's more calorie dense, has sunk to the bottom. Those are the things that are heavier. So you end up eating a lot more of those than what was calculated in the serving. So you end up eating more calories than what it says on the bag. Also, we touched on this a little bit earlier, absorption is pretty unpredictable. And again, food processing can really affect that. So in general, if you're cooking something like vegetables, that helps break down the cell walls around the vegetables that are hard for people to digest. And that gives you better access to the calories inside. So with something like that, you're going to be getting a lot more calories from that food than if you just ate it raw. 
This also happens, for example, with nuts. So let's say you're eating almonds. The whole almond is gonna give you less energy than something like almond butter. The almond butter is processed, you know, the, the, the walls around it have been broken down. Um, so it's easier to get in and extract that energy from it and get more calories. Also gut bacteria. And, and this, the research on this is in its infancy, but people do have different colonies of bacteria in their gut. And some of them are more capable of extracting the energy you eat so that it goes to your body. So it just depends on some of the species that are in there. And then also your gut health. So I know this from personal experience as someone with celiac disease. Um, if I was to eat a lot of gluten, that would damage my uh, intestines and it would damage the villi or the, the structures that help absorb the food. So when I'm cutting gluten, my GI tract gets a lot more healthy and I'm able to absorb more of those calories. So gut health can play an impact in how much you absorb. All right. So we talked about all the errors that can slip in when you're trying to predict calorie intake. But what about expenditure? Oh, let's get into this because there's a lot that can happen here as well. So first of all, basal metabolic rate or the calories you use at rest, that varies a lot from person to person. And it can vary based on things like, for instance, if you've been dieting recently, BMR tends to be lower than people who've lost a lot of weight or are still in a calorie deficit. And it tends to be lower as well in people who have thyroid hormones that are lower. Other hormones can impact this, such as leptin, adiponectin, and steroid hormones. And then energy expenditure. That can actually be pretty unpredictable. So intensity, and that, that's something that researchers use when they're trying to figure out how much energy a person is burning overall. They'll ask them, how intense is your exercise? And then what they do is they create this exercise factor, which is multiplied by the BMR to create total energy expenditure. And intensity is this really subjective thing. So what's in, intense for one person or very intense for one person could be just moderate or so-so for another. So that can really kind of inflate or deflate some of the numbers. And then Fitbit. Everyone wants to act like these are totally accurate. And I get a lot of questions from people. They're like, well, my Fitbit says I'm burning, you know, 2000 calories, but I'm eating 1700 and I'm not, I'm not losing weight. Well, so what people need to understand is that Fitbits aren't necessarily accurate. There's a lot of ways that things can go wrong here. And it just depends on the formula that that specific wearable uh, device uses. For example, some will combine heart rate um, with trying to, trying to determine what energy expenditure would be. Some will use the distance traveled. Some will use the swinging of the arms to try to figure out how many steps you took. And if the device slips from your wrist, then it loses contact. And then you may not know what the heart rate actually is. Also, um, if you're on a stationary bike, like I was the other day, or the stair climber, that registered as zero activity, no exercise, even though I was on there for 30 minutes. And that's because, you know, it didn't realize that my legs were moving and I was kind of sitting in place. So they can be really inaccurate. It's important to remember that. Also, mitochondrial efficiency can vary. And you may remember the mitochondria from like middle school biology, but when teachers talk about it, they always talk about it as being the powerhouse of the cell. And that's because mitochondria take the food that you eat and they turn it into energy, calories that your body can use for fuel or fat storage. And some people are just, they have really efficient mitochondria. They're really good at harnessing all of this energy really efficiently. 
and then turn it into calories that can be used for those things. Other people lose some of those calories as heat instead of being able to harness it and have it used for other functions of the body or for fat storage. So how efficient your mitochondria is uh, really depends on a lot of different factors. One of them being genetics, one of them being, for example, if you were recently dieting or lost a lot of weight, another just being how cardiovascular fit you are. And then there's meat, which we talked about a little bit earlier. And this differs a lot from person to person, from person to person. And part of it depends on your career. So as personal trainers, think about it. You guys are on your feet an awful lot. Sometimes you have clients from back to back. You need to follow them around. You need to demonstrate things for them. You're picking up weights and you're putting them down. So you're burning a lot of energy. Now compare that to someone like a developer or an engineer who's just sitting in front of their computer working all day. They're very sedentary. And studies show that calories burned through meat can differ between individuals by as much as 2,000 calories per day. Complicating this, of course, is how meat responds when you're in a calorie deficit or in a surplus. It can change even within the same person who has the same career. As you're dieting and you get more lethargic, you'll probably end up burning fewer calories through meat. So, you know, this gets really complicated and trying to predict it can be hard. And then there's the thermic effect of food um, and a mixed diet it, it, with a mixed diet of protein, carbs, and fat, generally 10% of the calories that you eat from food is going to be used just in processing and digesting that food. That's if there's a mixed diet. But it's important to remember that the thermic effect of food differs between protein, carbs, and fat. So with protein, if you're eating 100 calories just from pure protein, about 30 of those calories are going to be burned just to process it. If you're eating carbs and you eat 100 calories worth of carbs, about 15 of those calories are going to be used towards processing it. And with fat, it's more like three to five calories. Okay, so it's really going to differ a lot. So if you're eating a lot more protein than the average person, odds are you're going to be expending more energy through the thermic effect of food. And this gets complicated by the fact that even within the same macro, for example, within protein, the thermic effect is going to vary slightly depending on which amino acids make up that protein. So yeah, the point here is that it gets pretty complicated and it gets hard to predict either side of the equation, which is why so many people think that calories in, calories out just doesn't work and calories aren't that important for weight loss. A lot of people fall victim to these myths where something other than calories is, is being kind of pushed as the mediator of weight loss. And that's just not true. And one of the most common myths is that reducing insulin is going to drive fat loss and not calories. Now, this is called the carbohydrate insulin hypothesis. Insulin uh, is a hormone that pulls carbs into cells where they can be used as energy. And supporters of the hypothesis believe that if insulin levels go up, as in when you're eating quite a few carbs, that's gonna stop fat burning and it's gonna drive fat to be stored into fat cells. So the idea here is that if you lower insulin levels by eating fewer carbs, you're gonna be promoting fat loss. And so if that were true, you would expect some kind of advantage to be gained by a low carb diet. You would expect compared to a high carb diet, you would be losing a lot more weight, but that's not what the research shows. Let's look at this study from 2015 on the screen. Um, now, this is, a, this is a study done by Kevin Hall. It's a pretty famous one. And I like it because it's so well controlled. 
it took place in about metabolic word, which is different than a lot of studies. So calorie intake can be very, very, very tightly controlled and energy expenditure can be carefully measured. So those are some of the pros of this study. It was only six days in length because you can't expect people to stay at a metabolic word for very long. But um, so that's one of the shortcomings of it. But for six days, the researchers compared people on a low carb diet versus a higher carb, low fat diet. So what the researchers did was they put people into a 30% calorie deficit, either coming from carbs or coming from fat. Calories and protein were matched. And um, what we saw here in the upper right hand corner is that in the low carb dieters, insulin levels dropped by 22%. Okay, so that's pretty significant. And with a low fat, higher carb diet, insulin levels really didn't do much at all. They stayed almost exactly the same. But researchers also saw that after six days, uh, those on the low carb diet actually lost less weight than those on a low fat diet. And my guess is if this, if this was to be extrapolated more than six days, um, they probably would have been fairly even and probably not much significantly different. But the point here is that if insulin drove fat loss, the low carb diet should have been the clear winner, but it wasn't. So it really does come down to calories. And another myth that you might get from your clients they might ask you about is that hormones matter more than calories. And, you know, what people need to understand is that hormones and energy balance are really interconnected. It's hard to separate one from the other, and they're both important. So, for example, appetite hormones, a change in appetite hormones can affect how many uh, calories you eat. And a change in, for example, thyroid hormone or testosterone hormones can affect how many calories you burn. So they are intertwined. Um, but what people need to realize is that even in cases with severe hypothyroidism, where thyroid levels drop really low, the RMR or and even the total energy expenditure that for the calories that somebody burns doesn't really drop like to the point where you couldn't lose weight. It drops maybe in the most severe cases, somewhere around like eight or nine, maybe even 10%, which, you know, definitely makes weight loss harder. But if you drop calories low enough, you still uh, will lose weight. And also it's important to note here that no specific foods are gonna balance your hormones, right? But that being said, eating more calories overall potentially can, depending on why your hormones were out of balance in the first place. Something a lot of people don't realize is that when you're dieting, your thyroid hormone levels and your testosterone levels can drop. And those can bounce back after you start bringing calories back up again. Okay, so I think I've beaten this into your guys' head that a calorie deficit is always gonna be um, what drives fat loss. And all diets work by reducing calories, whether a person realizes or or not. So let's look at the infographic here. Um, there are four ways that different diets actually reduce the amount that someone eats. And this may be without someone realizing it. So they may think that the effect is due to something other than calories, but you know, we all know it really is calories. For example, with intermittent fasting, that restricts the time available to eat. Okay, so odds are you're going to be eating fewer calories if you if you just don't have time, you're skipping entire day, days or entire meals. Um, also, there's intuitive eating, and, and what this does is it tends to restrict the desire to overeat, so you're able to control your calorie intake a little bit better. 
And then there are the diets like flexible dieting, calorie counting, um, having meal plans, doing Weight Watchers, and all of these restrict the total amount of food that you eat. And then there's the, the diets that restrict food choices, right? Like clean eating, carnivore diet, keto, stuff like that. And of course, if you're restricting your food choices, odds are you're also going to restrict your calorie intake. So in a nutshell, that's how a lot of different diets work. And it all does come down to creating a calorie deficit. Okay. So now that you guys fully understand how weight loss works and the principles behind weight loss, let's talk about some popular diets. Um, three of them right now, clean eating, which has been popular a while, keto, and the vegan diet, which has spiked tremendously in popularity lately. We're going to talk about what these diets are, how people think they work, why they really work, and the pros and cons of each of these diets. All right, so clean eating. Clean eating emphasizes um, non-processed foods, so minimally processed whole foods. And vegetables and fruits tend to form the base of this diet, followed by low-fat protein sources, whole grains, and then good fats. So with fats, they really put an emphasis on types of, of fat that are rich in omega-3s, monounsaturated fats. So that's going to be like flaxseed oil, that's going to be your avocados, um, olive oil is going to be a big one. And the thing with this diet is there's no universally accepted definition of clean eating. That's going to differ tremendously from person to person. So some people may be more on the extreme side. They may, may feel like gluten's not good to eat. They may feel like whole grains aren't, or they may cut dairy or, you know, animal products. They may even cut out fruit. Like that's been kind of a popular thing to do these days is all the fear of sugar and cutting fruit. So this can actually, um, one of the downsides of it is it can turn into an eating disorder called orthorexia. But the biggest thing to remember is that it's a little bit nebulous. There's no exact definition of what clean is. People on the diet claim that it works because your body runs better on clean foods. They think that overly processed foods restrict your body's ability to burn fat. Now, let's refute a couple of these claims here. First of all, one thing that people don't realize is that processed foods can be good for you. They're not always bad. So some foods, like meal replacements, for example, um, are engineered to be good for you. They're fortified with extra pro protein that's rich in amino acids. They can have good fats added to them, right? They can also be fortified with vitamins and minerals. So they don't always have to be unhealthy. And healthy doesn't always mean low calories. So people on a clean eating diet, they probably eat a lot of foods that are very rich in fiber. They have a lot of vitamins and minerals. And in that sense, they are really good for you. But again, that doesn't mean that they, are, that they aren't energy dense. Some of them have a lot of calories. For example, avocados or salmon, you know, these are not going to be tremendously great for weight loss. It's going to be hard to stay in a calorie deficit if you're eating a ton of these types of foods. Now, let's just refute the, let's refute the claim here that overly processed foods restrict your ability to burn fat. So I don't know if many of you guys remember the Twinkie study. The media, there was like this outrage about this, but this professor from Kansas State University went on an 1800 calorie diet and he got most of his food from delicious treats that are overly processed, right? Like Twinkies, Doritos, Oreos. And then he supplemented that with a multivitamin, 
a little bit of celery to get fiber and some protein powder. And then after 10 weeks on this diet, what he found was that he lost 27 pounds and his blood lipid profile improved. So his cholesterol levels went down, which was mind blowing for a lot of people because they always thought if you're eating processed foods, there's no way you're going to be healthier. There's no way you're going to lose weight. So this was really counterintuitive for a lot of uh, people and the media you know, had a great time with it. So you can lose weight eating processed foods. So that might lead you to wonder, for those people who are doing clean eating, how does the diet actually work? And it works by, of course, reducing calories. And this happens when a person who's eating processed foods that are really delicious, um, very convenient, easy to overeat, substitute those for products that, for example, have high volume. So a lot of whole foods have a lot of fiber, a lot of volume, and they, they're just very filling. So it's easier to eat less without actually knowing it. And the pros of this is that you get plenty of fiber. You get a lot of vitamins and minerals. Plants are great sources of antioxidants and compounds that are good for your health, like phytochemicals. And like we just talked about, it's extremely filling. It's hard to overeat when you're really satisfied. But the cons of that, and there are actually plenty, um, are for the most part psychological. So categorizing food as good or bad can really cause issues. It can cause people to become obsessed with eating only pure foods. Um, it can cause a lot of guilt when they go off their diet plan, which inevitably people go out to eat and at some point they usually do. And then that can lead to all these cravings, giving that food power in their mind and then ultimately binging. So, you know, you end up erasing that calorie deficit as you go on these binges and eat more food. And another major issue with it is that by putting all the emphasis on pure foods, you're obscuring the real reason for weight loss, which, of course, is creating a calorie deficit. But people don't know that. They attribute the weight loss to some magical property of the specific clean foods that they're eating. So if they don't have success on the diet and they don't end up losing weight, or they hit a weight loss plateau, for example, they don't know how to adjust their diet in order to promote fat loss. And that's a huge issue. It's always better to know exactly what's causing the weight loss. Now, let's talk about the vegan diet. And when Netflix came out with Game Changers, there was an uproar around this. Everybody was so excited and so many people went vegan. So what is the diet? Basically, you're eating all plant foods and you're cutting out animal products like dairy, eggs, and meat. So emphasis on all plants. And grains, fruits and vegetables, those form the foundation of this diet. Beans, that's where a lot of people um, who are vegan get their protein from. And then there are nuts and seeds that people kind of sprinkle in. So people who claim that this diet works or that this diet works, says that it works because your body runs better on plants. The animal products are just inherently bad for you. They're high in saturated fat, and it's harder to lose weight when you're eating animal products. But this idea that your body necessarily runs better on plants or that humans weren't meant to eat meat just isn't true. So our teeth show that we did evolve to eat both plants and meat. And also, if people were only meant to eat plants and never have any meat, then we would be able to get the E12 from plants. You should be able to get all the vitamins and minerals you need just by eating plants. And that's not what happens. Um, B12 is only found in animal products. So vegans would have to supplement that. Also, 
it's really important to understand that animal products aren't always bad. They can be really good for you. So animal products that are high in protein contain really high amounts of essential amino acids. And these are amino acids that your body can't make. So it has to get them through food. Um, also high levels of leucine. It's really great for muscle preservation. It has a very high thermic effect. Um, and, you know, there are downsides, of course, to eating animal meat or some cuts of animal meat. Some of it's really high in fat. And that fat is going to be saturated fat, which is not great for cholesterol. For people prone to having high LDL, it can raise LDL even more, which wouldn't be a good thing for heart disease. But there are plenty of low-fat animal meats available. So there's chicken breast. There's the low-fat turkey, there's fish, other types of seafood. All of these are very, very low in fat, and they have a great amino acid profile. So they also are very rich, for example, in B vitamins. And dairy itself is really good for you, and there's a ton of studies that show that, um, that show its effect on bone density. But it's a rich source of calcium. It's often fortified with vitamin C. It's very high in potassium, which Americans don't get enough of. And even it has a lot of zinc in it too. So animal products can be really good for you. Also, it's not one or the other, right? You can eat animal products and you can eat plant products. In fact, you can continue to follow a mostly plant-based diet and just sprinkle some um, animal products in there. So it's not one or the other. Okay, so how does the vegan diet work? Well, a little bit similar to clean eating in that, um, but in this diet, you're substituting meat, which is often high in fat, high in saturated fat and high in calories with only plant products, which tend to be lower in calories and very, very filling because these are generally very high volume. And, and again, they're very rich in fiber. So you're eating less without knowing it. Um, and the pros of it, and there are a lot of pros to this diet actually, is that it's ethical. If you care about animal welfare, the environment, this can be something that you may want to do. It's also very satiating. We talked about that. Um, it's loaded with fiber, very high volume. It's rich in vitamins and minerals. And plants, of course, have these compounds that act as antioxidants, these phytochemicals. So it's really good for you in that way. And when you're only eating plants, of course, you're going to be eating a lot of those. So that's a really good thing. And then finally, it can be really, really good for people who have like heart disease and are looking for a way to lower their cholesterol. This diet is extremely powerful for that because most of the saturated fat you're going to be eating is from animal products. So when you cut out animal products completely, inevitably you cut most of the saturated fat down. Now, on the flip side, there's also, of course, downsides to this, which is it's harder to get quality protein. We talked a little bit how animal sources of protein are rich in essential amino acids and branching amino acids like leucine. So those are going to be really good for you. They're complete proteins, meaning that your body is getting the essential amino acids and the quantities that it generally needs and it's getting all of them. But with plant proteins, you have to pay a little bit more attention to how you combine the different foods so that you get enough of these essential amino acids. Um, so you have to do that to get in order to get complete protein. And you can totally do that. It just takes a little bit more work. And it may take supplementing, for example, like pea protein and making sure that you're getting some of the products that are meat alternatives that are high in protein just so that you can meet your daily total intake. Also, getting enough omega-3 in the right form, it takes work. 
So seafood is a major source of EPA and DHA. And when uh, vegans don't eat seafood, then they're going to have a hard time getting this. They're going to be getting plenty of ALA, which is another form of omega-3 that can be found in plants. But that has to be converted to EPA and DHA, which different people do uh, to different degrees. Some people aren't as good at doing that as others. So if you want to make sure to get enough of that, you're probably going to make sure that you're eating something like seaweed or that you're getting a good supplement. Also, you are opening yourself up to some vitamin deficiencies, for example, like B12, zinc, iron. You're not getting the animal meat that has heme iron in it, which is highly absorbable. You're only getting plant sources, which aren't as absorbable. So that's something you're going to need to pay attention to. And it can be hard for some to stick to. They miss the animal products. Um, and then also, for some people, it obscures the reason for weight loss. Okay, let's move to our third diet now, which is the keto diet. And this is very different from the diets that we talked about. This is going to be made up almost entirely of fat. So 78 to 80% of the calories in the diet are coming from fat. And then it's moderate in protein. So maybe around 15 to 20% of the calories are from protein. And then you're sprinkling in a little bit of carbs. You're usually eating less than 5%. And that comes in the form of things like berries and seeds. Now, people who follow the keto diet, some of them believe that the diet works, of course, by lowering insulin. And if you cut out carbs, you're, you're inevitably going to lower insulin levels. And so that's going to help you to be able to burn more fat. And that if you only eat fat, and this is a funny, interesting claim that I'll debunk in a, in a little bit, but if you only eat fat, you're going to be burning more fat. You turn your body into a fat burning machine. And we talked about earlier that a calorie deficit drives fat loss, right? And we gave some of the evidence for that and not insulin levels. So that first claim isn't true. But with the second one, it's important to understand that dietary fat does not equal stored fat. Those are two very different things. So if you're eating more fat, of course, you're going to be burning more fat because you're burning through the fat you're eating, the fat that's in your bloodstream. But in order to burn stored fat, which is what you're really after if you're trying to lose weight as body fat, you're going to need to burn through all that fat that you're eating plus enough fat to dig into your calorie reserve. So a calorie deficit still applies. All right, so let's talk about how this diet works to reduce calories. Well, the first thing is that when you're cutting carbs, you're going to be burning through all the carbs or all the sugar in your bloodstream. And then you're going to be digging into the carbs that are stored as glycogen around your liver and muscle. And it's important to understand that for each gram of glycogen, your body stores three grams of water along with it. So when you burn through that, you're also getting rid of those three grams of water. So you're going to lose water weight. And as you're dropping carbs down on the diet and insulin levels are dropping, that's going to cause your kidneys to retain less sodium. So you end up kicking out more sodium and water follows in your urine. So you're going to pee out a lot of water. And this drop in the scale can be really exciting for people. In two weeks, people can lose as much as 10 pounds from water. They may, they'll probably be losing a little bit of fat as well, but so much of it is from water. And that fast weight loss can cause people to think that the diet really works. So that's going to increase their motivation. And it's also going to increase their ability to stick to the diet. They're going to want to adhere to it more because they're thinking, man, this is working for me. I better keep going. And then there's also the increased satiety that this diet 
springs, um, which happens from two different things. One, you're still eating a lot of protein. Uh, and the other thing is that when your body's burning through a lot of fat and it doesn't have the presence of carbs, it switches over to something called ketosis, where your body is creating ketones out of some of that fat. And this is an alternate source of fuel that your body can run on, but ketone bodies also have other roles so that they can be extremely appetite suppressing. That's one of the things that they can do. So this combination of high protein and higher ketone bodies creates this kind of perfect storm for increased satiety. And that's a really good thing that can help you eat less without realizing it. And then there's, of course, the limited food choices that come with cutting carbs. When you cut carbs, you're cutting out a lot of really delicious, sugary foods like pastries, things that have a lot of calories and are easy to overeat on. And you're replacing that with more salty, savory items. Studies show that the higher the variety of different flavors in a meal, the more you're going to want to overeat on that. So if you're constantly eating the same types of food with a salty, savory flavor, it's like your brain's going to get a little bit bored of that, and you're not going to have the desire to overeat as much. So in all of those ways, the keto diet can help you reduce calories without even knowing it. So like the vegan diet, there's also a lot of pros to this diet um, that are unique to it. And one of them is that you get an immediate drop in blood sugar, right? So for people who have pre-diabetes, this can be really helpful. Um, it's easy to get high quality proteins because you're eating a pretty high protein diet. It's very satiating, as we just talked about. It's, it has a bunch of savory, delicious foods, so people generally don't feel super deprived when they're on it. And it's very, very anti-inflammatory. Ketone bodies not only serve as a source of extra fuel, um, it also, like we talked about, has appetite suppressing effects, and it can shut down inflammatory pathways. When your body switches over to ketone metabolism, that has really neuroprotective effects. So it can help inflammation go down. It can help reduce um, the production of free radicals in your body. You know, and all of that combines to be really good for disorders um, that involve the nerves, such as Parkinson's or seizure disorders, for example, for Alzheimer's and stuff like that. Now, there are also, of course, some really big downsides. For example, some people cannot do the diet and sh just should not at all. It could really hurt them. For example, people with uh, fat metabolism disorders can't do the diet. People who have liver problems or maybe are prone to pancreatitis shouldn't do it. And people with low blood pressure, very low blood pressure to start out with. And I figured this out the hard way. I did the diet for about four weeks and that resulted in um, just a lot of heart palpitations and fainting spells. So it took my low blood pressure and it dropped it even further. So that's something important for people to know. And it also is different than the other diets in that it requires a certain amount of adaptation. Your body has to get used to running fully on fat and ketones, which is a new thing for it. So during that time, you are probably gonna be prone to having headaches, nausea, you might get electrolyte disturbances. So it's important for people to supplement with things like potassium, magnesium, and really make sure they're eating a lot of sodium. Um, and because they're losing a lot of water, it's easy to get dehydrated. So some of this stuff can be uncomfortable for that two to four week adaptation period. Also, usually people on the diet, if they also sprinkle in some dairy and they eat enough vegetables, they don't tend to have any major deficiencies, but vitamin C is a deficiency that they can develop. 
And of course, you need to make sure you're getting enough electrolytes during that adaptation period. Something that a lot of people talk about in the fitness industry is that it can impair uh, athletic performance, and that's totally true. So sprinting can be somewhat impaired. Endurance exercise can be really impaired. Power studies show not as much, but it's not great in general for athletes competing very intensely. It raises LDL. This is a huge problem for people who have heart disease or who have higher cholesterol levels in the first place. Probably not a great diet for those people to go on. And it's hard for them to stick to. You're basically saying, I'm never gonna eat carbs again. I'm not gonna eat them at all. And that gets pretty hard when you're like, for example, at family events where you can't pack food or you're going out to eat. And then like a lot of the other diets, it obscures the reason for weight loss. And I, I feel like with this diet, um, that's really common. A lot of people attribute the success they have to not eating carbs, to drops in insulin and, and saying that they're burning more fat. But we all know it actually is from a calorie deficit. Okay, so we talked about these popular diets, and there are a lot of other ones out there that can work as well. So which one do you choose? And how do you choose? Well, there's five main factors to consider. You want to consider a diet's effectiveness in creating a calorie deficit, its ability to preserve your lean body mass, its potential for creating adverse effects, um, its alignment with preferences and intolerances, for example, and then, very important, how sustainable that diet is over the long term. So let's start by talking about the effectiveness in creating a calorie deficit. So there are, certain, there are certain diets that basically ensure a calorie deficit. Things like calorie counting, for example, or tracking your macros. If you're measuring your serving sizes right and you're being really accurate and remembering to log your foods, you'll know exactly how many calories you're eating. Now, that being said, it isn't totally bulletproof because um, I have had clients claim that they're eating a certain amount and they're showing me their food logs, but then I have them eat prepackaged meals and meal replacements where we know the actual calories, it's right on the label, and they end up losing weight. So, you know, it's not bulletproof, but if you're tracking things right, it basically does maximize your ability to get into a calorie deficit. But um, the most bulletproof thing, of course, is just eating prepackaged meals and meal replacements. And then there are the other diets. Um, and these ones here listed in the second column they leave room for error, but they can be very powerful in helping you reduce your calorie intake without tracking. Now, you don't need to track necessarily to lose weight. That's just a helpful thing, but you can lose weight on some of these other diets. You know, for instance, we talked about the keto diet as being very satiating and the carnivore diet works also in a similar way. You're getting into ketosis. You're getting a lot of your calories from protein. So it's really filling. The vegan diet, you know, that's, that's a really satiating diet. It's that high volume, high fiber type of food that's going to fill you up. And in fact, a recent study shows that the vegan diet was even more filling than the keto diet. People on the vegan diet tended to spontaneously eat less than those on the keto diet. Intermittent fasting. When you're skipping entire meals or days of eating, it can be really hard to overeat. And research that was done around 2010 in premenopausal women um, showed that with alternate day fasting or skipping entire days of eating every other day, the women did not compensate 
by making up for the calorie deficit on the on the fasting days by eating more on the feeding days. So they were able to sustain that calorie deficit for the week. People just don't tend to compensate. So it's a really good way to get into a calorie deficit. And then, of course, there's eating healthy, which is subject to error because you may think you're eating healthy, but that doesn't mean low calorie. And then there's things like paleo or gluten free that were pretty effective for a while because you're eating whole foods that tend to be filling in low in calories. But recently, the marketers, you know, have kind of realized that they can profit off this and by making these sorts of foods and they make convenient foods that are really delicious and a little bit more addicting. Um, so my parents discovered this the hard way. They went to Costco. They were trying to lose weight. So they bought all these new products. And one of them was a box of paleo bars. And when I turned it around and looked at the label, the protein, carbs, fat, and calories of that were almost identical to a Snickers bar, which is, you know, just crazy because you're not going to be losing more weight by eating the paleo bar. Sure, it may have a little bit more fiber, it had berries in it, so it probably had some more antioxidants and stuff like that. So in some ways it was better for you, but when it comes to fat loss, not necessarily. It's not the magic bullet that it seems by going paleo or gluten-free. And then you need to consider your ability to preserve lean body mass. And as trainers, I don't really need to overstate the importance of this to you guys probably, but it's important because when you're on a diet, you want to ensure that most of the weight you lose is in the form of fat, and you want to keep your met metabolic rate as high as you can. Now, there are a few things that are going to help um, that are going to help you preserve lean body mass while dieting. One of the things is eating a lot of protein. One of them is resistance training, and the third thing is not dropping calories extremely low for too long. Now, if you have more body fat, of course, you can get away with that, but for the average person, it's something you kind of want to stay away from. So let's look at some diets in this context. Tracking protein is going to be the thing that ensures optimal intake. So tracking macros is going to be probably the best diet for that. You know exactly what you're getting. And then that's going to be followed by the keto, carnivore, paleo diets, because these really prioritize protein. And next in line, we have intermittent fasting. Um, and that's because it doesn't restrict high protein foods. Now, the caveat here is if you're fasting, for example, more than a day, you're probably going to start significantly breaking down muscle stores at that point. So it becomes not as great. But if you're just skipping meals and you're still keeping your protein intake high, that's perfectly fine. And then the diets that don't fare as well is going to be the vegan diet, simply because you're getting sources of protein that aren't as high in essential amino acids and some of those quality amino acids that are going to help you preserve lean mass. Um, of course, if you're tracking your intake and you're vegan, then that erases that disadvantage. So now you're getting enough protein and you'll be fine. And very low calorie diets, like those that drop calories below 800, um, those that are juice diets are going to be very, very low in calories, very low in protein most of the time. So these are diets that are actually going to be not great for preserving lean mass. Okay, next thing you want to look at is the potential for adverse effects. And we talked about the keto diet, the vegan diet, eating clean, and how some of those, some of the disadvantages of those things. So let's talk about carnivore. Carnivore is similar to keto in that you're only eating meat, um, but you don't get to eat plants. So odds are you're going to be falling short in fiber. You may have problems with regularity. Um, and just only eating those meat, animal meats 
it opens you up to a lot of deficiencies. Plants are a great source of a lot of vitamins and minerals. And then, for example, the paleo diet, um, that is going to needlessly restrict healthy food. So you're restricting things for no real reason at all. That they're saying that your body runs better on foods that your ancestors were meant to eat. Not necessarily true. If that was the case, multivitamins wouldn't be a thing just because the ancestors didn't grow up eating it or evolve eating it doesn't mean that it can't be a good thing for your body. Multivitamins are still good. No one took them back then. I think we have a longer lifespan now than we did way back when people weren't uh, eating things like potatoes and grains. So yeah, it needlessly restricts foods. And that's unfortunate because a lot of the foods that it restricts, things like dairy and beans and sometimes potatoes, those have a lot of vitamins and minerals. And beans are awesome for you. They have a lot of fiber. And then there's low fat diets. So dropping fat too low can cause essential fatty acid deficiencies. It can impair the absorption of fat soluble vitamins, and it can also impair hormone production. So you really don't want to drop or drop that too low at all. Now there's some people that say eating a lot of carbs and a very little bit of fat will cause diabetes. And that's not true if you're in a calorie deficit, especially because you're going to be losing body fat and higher levels of body fat and especially visceral fat have been tied to higher blood sugar levels. So you're actually, if you're doing it right, you're going to be improving insulin sensitivity. And um, in general, you should have a little bit better blood sugar control. So you're not going to become diabetic if you're not already diabetic by eating this. That doesn't necessarily mean I would advocate this for people who are diabetic at all or who have prediabetes. I would probably choose something a little bit moderate or lower in carbs, but just wanted to dispel that myth real quick. And then alignment with preferences. This is important consideration because a diet's only as good as your ability to stick to it. And then effectiveness becomes totally irrelevant. It could be the best diet in the world, but if you can't actually stick to it, it's not going to work. So in terms of a very low calorie diet, can you handle being hungry all the time? With intermittent fasting, are you going to be able to fast or are you going to succumb to the discomfort like headaches and stuff like that? With keto, is it possible for you to cut out carbs? And vegan, can you cut out animal products? Paleo and clean eating, are you going to be able to stay on this restrictive diet where you're, you know, staying away from off limit foods? And with counting calories and tracking macros, are you going to be able to actually log all your food and your serving sizes each day? Because there's a lot of people who just aren't willing to do that. Finally, and probably most important, you want to consider long-term sustainability when choosing a diet. Because the behaviors you use during the process of losing weight should continue on some level once you've lost the weight. You can't just YOLO it and go right back to what you were eating or you're going to experience this massive regain. So things that won't get you far, um, it's going to be like relying on external products or meal plans, and that keeps you dependent on them. And you never actually learn how to eat, how to cut calories on your own. So once the diet's done, what do you do then? You need some kind of an exit strategy. And the same goes if you're on a very low calorie diet, if you're cutting calories to like 800. and most of the time, that's not a great idea, but for some people, that's perfectly okay. For example, with people who need to lose a lot of weight quickly because they're very overweight and they have medical problems, you know, that's something that people can do. Or if it's something that people are going to do 
uh, with, and they have lower body fat levels and they're only planning on doing it for a very short time. And then they're getting off the diet, you know, that's probably okay. Um, and then there's going to be diets that are hard to stick to, for example, like diets that restrict or label foods that we talked about. And the most sustainable diets are going to be the ones that actually teach you how to eat. And this is going to include calorie counting or tracking your macros, also known as flexible dieting. And that's because you learn about portion sizes. You learn how many calories and if you're tracking macros, how much protein, carbs, and fat are in different foods. So even if you stop tracking and you're no longer counting things, you get pretty good at estimating and you're able to eat a little bit more intuitive. So it's something that you can use long-term. Okay, so as a dietitian, let's talk about how I put together my plans and how dietitians do that. Um, I consider all those factors that we just talked about, but I also take that a step further for those who are, for example, highly motivated, who are a little bit more advanced and who are willing and able to track their macros. That's what I have them do. I take that a step, uh, a step beyond calories and I have them track their protein, carbs, and fat with a goal of hitting an amount that I set for them. And it's important to track your macros because each has a specific role in your body and it can be really helpful, especially when it comes to optimizing your body composition or enhancing your weight loss success. It really does matter where your calories come from if you're trying to put together the most effective diet possible. So protein is going to help with body composition because it preserves muscle, right? And it also, we talked about how it has a high thermic effect, so it boosts metabolism. And in general, it just keeps you full on dieting, so it's going to help you stick to your diet calories. And then you have carbs, which are really important for athletes. And I work with a lot of athletes, so their performance is something you want to keep in mind, especially if they're getting in a calorie deficit. You don't want to drop carbs too low. And with fat, fat's going to prevent changes to hormones that might otherwise sabotage fat loss. For instance, testosterone. You want to make sure that, you know, that that doesn't drop as a result of dropping fat too low. So where calories come from does matter. Now, Let's talk about calculating macros. How does somebody actually do that? And what I do and what most dietitians do is set calories first. That's the first thing you want to do is determine how many calories the client needs in general. And you can do this a couple different ways. One is maybe going online and finding an energy expenditure formula and plugging in some of that information. That can give you just kind of an average of what probably is going to work for how many calories they need just to maintain their body weight. And if you want to get a little bit more personal, something I used to do is um, I would have my clients track and log all their food without necessarily trying to lose weight or change anything. because so I was trying to get maintenance calories. I would have them do that for three to five days. And then I would take an average to get the maintenance calories. And from there, you want to create a calorie deficit by cutting a certain amount. So most people will cut anywhere between like 15 to 30%. 30% is a little steep, but that's what a lot of research studies use for fast weight loss. I tend to err more on the 15 to 20% side. Um, and then next, after you have calories, you want to set your protein. And protein needs are usually right around 0.7 to 1 gram of protein per pound. And if you want to watch my how much protein do you need presentation, I really go into depth on some of the factors 
that will determine where to set the protein within that range. And then finally, you want to take the remaining calories and you want to set carbs and fat. You want to distribute those between carbs and fat. And mostly you're going to do that based on a person's preference. That's the most important because again, if the client can stick to the diet and they like the diet, then that's always going to be like the, the best thing to do. But you may also consider some other things like, for instance, blood sugar control. If someone is, you know, is kind of on the borderline of being pre-diabetic or their blood sugar tends to run high and they're concerned about that, you might want to get a greater proportion coming from fat. Um, and as far as carbs go, if they're an athlete, then it's probably more important that they have more carbs. So that's how you'll set that up. And on average, the average American, the guidelines are right around 30% of calories coming from fat. But again, totally manipulatable depending on the person. All right. And as a side note, it is totally not necessary to track to lose weight. For some, this can be overkill. We talked about how plenty of diets are able to reduce calories without you necessarily trying. So you really have to personalize it for your client. Also, there are cases where you have a client who is prone to developing eating disorders or maybe getting a little bit neurotic. And some of those people become very obsessed with counting, tracking, measuring everything. So for those people, you know, uh, tracking macros may not be the best thing. All right. So the takeaways are, because we talked about a lot. So let me do a quick recap. To help your clients, you need to understand the science behind weight loss. A calorie deficit is what drives fat loss. Any diet can be effective if it lowers calories, but each is going to have pros and cons. Five factors should be considered when choosing a diet plan, including effectiveness, lean mass preservation, adverse effects, alignment with preferences, and the sustainability over that, of that diet over the long term. And tracking calories or macros can ensure optimal intake and teach lifelong skills. So it's a great diet to do if it works for, for your specific client. All right, here are your references. It's been a pleasure speaking to you guys today. If you enjoyed this and you want to follow me on social media, my Instagram handle is at the underscore fit underscore dietitian. Um, my website is avatarnutrition.com. You can follow our Instagram channel for my company at, at Avatar Nutrition. And our YouTube channel is Avatar Nutrition as well. So I hope you enjoyed the session today. And again, if you want to learn more, follow me. I'm always making little videos.